they give us the money, maybe, that no one has signed up for. And you heard it here, folks. Welcome to the Rocks and Roots podcast. Cranky says he's having a stroke. But no, he was. he is not. Do not worry, friends. I am Tumbles, and what Cranky was just talking about was Patreon. <laughs> yeah, I cannot believe I screwed that up so bad. Oh, Welcome. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm just so excited because we had just had a wonderful interview with Jonathan Sahart. That must be it. I'm, I'm overwhelmed with excitement. With excitement. Well, it was a wonderful, wonderful hour plus with Jonathan. So we figured uh, before we get into that fantastic interview, we would do our own plugs at the beginning Mm -hmm. of this episode. So we'll start with the Instagram, which is rocks underscore and underscore roots underscore pod. We also have the TikTok, which is at rocks underscore roots underscore podcast and cranky does send those videos over to instagram stories so for those of you who don't have the ticks and or the talks (laughs) you'll be able to go over to the grams and listen to that we also have a youtube and um what i've been doing is sending all of our episodes and uploading them onto youtube as well as apple so we have that. And finally, last but certainly not least, you are hopefully listening to this on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us uh, a review. Please stop in and say hi. Uh, leave us some stars if you love the or like this podcast. We love and like doing these podcasts and episodes. God, I'm, I'm really fucking this up too. That's okay. So why don't we say without further ado, here is Jonathan Sahark. Well, good evening, Jonathan. It is so nice to chat with you this evening. Hey, guys. It is it's beautiful, it is snowy, and it is cold. Here, at so, least. How much? Because we were just up there on Sunday, and we got out of there before the snow came in. How much snow did you guys end up yeah. getting? Um, we still only got about a foot, like most people. Um, really? I would say, though, up higher elevations, I saw upwards of 24 inches. Uh, so, I mean, I was out backcountry skiing, so we definitely have enough to do that. Uh, but I think in total, we have maybe about 12 to 18 inches or so. So it's a good a good start. We're kind of like where we should be at, if that makes sense. Uh, but, I mean, like the temperatures have been super, super cold. Uh, and then it's going to be like negative 25 tomorrow. And that's like what it's – I mean, it's going to be the fourth or fifth day this month alone that's been below minus 20. Um, so we have the temperatures and it's great, but we don't have the precipitation. Is that normal temperatures for the Adirondacks? Well, it's normal. Like it's, well, it's not abnormal. I mean, if you were to look at like what average temperatures are, I mean, I would say it's like, it should be teens to like zero, um, around the average time I'd say, but I've never seen, uh, I mean, by the time this month is over all of January out of 30 days, I would like to say maybe 20 of them were below zero. Um, which is definitely a, a decent amount of below zero days, and we don't normally have that till February, so it's definitely colder than what it would normally be at this time of year. All right, wow, yeah, we were when we did um, what did we do? Cascade and Porter, yeah, <laughs> Cascade and Porter on uh, on Sunday. We had never seen those signs before that were posted on the billboards right when you, when you start your your hike. That extreme weather warning. We highly suggest you don't go out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
You know, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, you can't expect like every single person necessarily to like they, you know, the Rangers and those signs are in place for everyone, right? Because they, they're not going to say like unless you have experience and equipment, then don't go. Obviously, like when you're going up to like Algonquin, there's a warning sign that says weather subject to severe change. Do not proceed without further like appropriate gear and stuff like that. You know, so it's like it's not an issue going out in life threatening conditions. It's all a matter of how you handle yourself and how you respect. The mountains and just having the gear and the proper knowledge um because i was just telling you guys how i'm hammocking out tomorrow night at mcintyre falls solo and it's gonna be negative 25 minus 30 degrees um uh, and i have the equipment and like i'm comfortable doing that um so i mean it's not for everyone and it's not you know but yeah yeah I totally agree um before you came on we were just talking about those signs and we said exactly that i mean they're for everyone but um, if you have the right gear, if you have some semblance of experience, you shouldn't have a problem. All right. That was an awesome little tangent. So let's kind of rewind. And again, welcome to the Rocks and Roots podcast. Yeah, thanks um, for having me. Uh, so we've been following you for years and you've kind of inspired us to start our own Adirondack 46 journey. We are normally Appalachian trail hikers. Mm-hmm. And within the last two years, we've started getting into the mountains partially um, through because we've watched your videos and have absolutely loved it and decided to give it a shot ourselves. And so far, it's been great. So thank you for that. Um, but let's start with your background. So you are not originally from the Adirondacks. So where did you grow up and how did you get into peak bagging? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's, uh, every single time I tell the story, I I go off on tangents or whatever. So I'll try to keep it like nice and precise here. (laughs) Um, I consider myself fairly local. Um, even though I wasn't from here and, you know, I was from multiple states away, the thing is I was born and raised vacationing in the Adirondacks. Obviously I didn't have the local experience, but I did start to incorporate myself at a younger age with knowing locals and the local life. And, you know, out of the 12 months, I'd probably say I spent two months out of the year, mostly in the summer, um, between when I was born and, uh, like 16 or so, uh, I would spend like my entire summers in the Adirondacks and Vermont, New Hampshire and Maine, but mainly uh, here. Um, My great grandmother, uh, who was originally from New Jersey, uh, was invited one time to come up to a place called Camp of the Woods in Speculator, which is in the southern region of the Adirondacks. I believe that was in the 1920s. Uh, I think I want to say somewhere around 24, 25. So we're coming up to 100 years. And um, she absolutely loved it fell in love with the camp and everything and started to make it a habit of coming up every single year which then in results uh, resulted in her bringing um my grandmother um there uh, and then who coincidentally met her husband as well not in the adirondacks but who actually happened to have a ton of adirondack uh, in like uh, the adirondacks were part of his life as well and a lot of adirondack involvement and it was just i mean it was just kind of cool coincidence i guess and they um they obviously they got married, had my my mom and my aunts and uncles and everything, and we just continued it as tradition, um, statically like every single year for the most part, probably since um, 
I would say like the 60s or 70s, but like there was definitely off and on years from the 20s to the 60s. Um, so it wasn't every year, but it was almost every single year since then. And so then that's where like I'm fourth generation and was raised going to the same place that my great grandmother did and um, spending time like hiking in you know the Western region and the Southern region, being out there like when I was younger um, in some of the smaller mountains and really being able to experience the Adirondacks. And it just became, I just became used to knowing what the Adirondacks were. Um, so, you know, a lot of people that are from Ohio or whatever, they like later on in life or whatever, discover the Adirondacks and like get into hiking and stuff like that. And that's like 90% of people, like they want to hike, they want to, you know, they find about the Adirondacks and they either want to become a 46er or, um, they were like, yeah, I was born and raised there, but I had no idea what was there. And then they, they fall in love with it again. Uh, but for me, it's like, um, like I did not live there. Uh, and I still came there. And I'd never appreciated the high peaks, the high peaks until I got into photography, um, late high school. And, you know, that's when I started to really take it deeper and start to deepen my relationship with the Adirondacks, which eventually, uh, involved me realizing I wanted to move there, um, and to grow my career that I have now, uh, in photography and YouTube, um, and guiding here. Um, and so I kind of just took it on me after high school, um, to start really, uh, because I realized how much I love this place. Uh, and I kind of wanted for that for myself. And so I was raised in a very, um, unconventional way, I guess you could say, but in a way that I think is very healthy where my parents wanted me to do whatever they were supportive in any, any way, pretty much. Um, and they both like loving parents, which I'm very, very grateful for. And they, uh, they raised me to, to have adventure, to want to step out and take those risks and to not withhold, um, I guess the abilities or the talents that we find ourselves having and just kind of run with that. And I kind of just learned what it meant to like, uh, take that head on and to make, try to make a career out of that and live frugally as well. Cause I'll tell you, it's not easy making a lot of money off of photography, especially landscape right. photography. Cause a lot of people are like, wait, you know, cause people always call themselves a photographer and a professional photographer, like, and whatever. Um, but it's like, Oh wait, you make, you make a living doing landscape photography. I'm like, yeah, I know it sounds weird. It's niche. Cause it's, it's definitely really hard to do. Um, so you have to have like the right things, but anyways, I, I eventually, um, I don't want to say everything like fell into my lap. I definitely put a lot of time, effort and, um, thought into just, um, seeking out opportunities and being proactive with that and wanting, trying to make it happen here. Um, and so now here I am three years later after living here full time. Wow. So even though you are technically not from there, um, you can kind of consider your fourth generation been there every summer. You really yeah. kind of are from there. That's yeah. I, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I'm not going to be like, Oh, I, I saw the Adirondacks in the nineties, early two thousands. Like I was hiking these trails when there was, a, you know, there was no one in the logbook for a week. You know, it's like, I, like I hear the stories. I believe it. I mean, even in 2015, when I started hiking here, like I, there's a still dr dramatic difference. So I get, I get, I get it. Um, but yeah, you know, so I'm, yeah, I'm on the, I'm on the edge, you know, locals wouldn't call me a local probably, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, a local by association. Excellent. Can you give our listeners a bit of a background and talk about the Adirondack mountains themselves? How many are sure. there? And please explain the 46. Yeah. So, uh, People here might have heard of like uh, the Northeast 115 or the Northeast 111. Um, I guess what more people officially call it simply because um, there's um, so there's 111 mountains in between New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine that are uh, 4,000 feet in elevation or higher, and there are four 
that are included slash excluded from that list because they're under 4,000 feet, and those are in the Adirondacks. Uh, in that list, the 46 high peaks, I believe, were really like amongst the first ones out of all those to really become um, a notable challenge, I guess you could say, in the 1920s with um, Herbert Clark and Bob and George Marshall. Um and so uh, they, during like the 1800s, most of the 1800s, they were surveyed these mountains up here because in 1797, um, Charles Broadhead was commissioned by the state um, because half of this land, these high peaks, half of them were given, this land was all given to veterans of the Revolutionary War. And so Charles Broadhead in 1797 in June was commissioned to go uh, and survey this land. And so he made the very first ascent of giant of the valley. Um, and went up to uh, that summit and bushwhacked and do a, drew a straight line as the crow flies and pretty much just bushwhacked and hiked that and surveyed the land um, and did a lot of a couple first ascents. Um, but uh, yeah, so in the course of the Adirondacks, which I would say pretty much in the 1800s were really just was the whole entire like no one's really summited every single peak up until really the end of the 1800s and um, thus became the 46 high peaks um, back in pre-survey era when they uh or pre-usgs era um when they thought every single peak was four thousand feet or higher um and so they historically just kept them as 46 peaks uh even though the other ones were not considered four thousand feet and so once they became uh bob and george and herbert clark all became 46ers uh, people really started to uh, take on after that and maybe around it wasn't until around maybe 20 years maybe no 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 less than that maybe like 10 10 to 15 years about 100 people became 46ers and then like i think by like uh the 60s there was about a thousand or so uh wow. and uh kind of just flowed into what it is today um so yeah it's all based it's all like the adirondacks themselves are all heritage it is all like I feel like from the very beginning and why this place is so special um, that like the whites and the greens can't co compare to is the whole history behind it and how from the very, very beginning, the fundamental roots of wanting to explore this specific area and how it was done is still done in that same way today. Um, and people can still go and hike Marcy even on a crowded day. Um, depending on how you really envision yourself there and how you really examine everything around you, you can still go and do that and still feel like you are in the middle of nowhere, you know? So it's, mm -hmm. I, I mean, a lot, I mean, some people would disagree with that because it's like, obviously if you're going up Cascade on Memorial day weekend, like there's going to be yeah. over a thousand people up there and it's kind of hard because there's a bunch of crying people and just like sweaty people and whatever. But <laughs> I, I get it. Like there's a lot of, uh, I think it's just so beautiful that between the, the whole entire history of it, people are still respecting the same thing. They're still taking after the same stuff today. Uh, it's not nationally owned. It's not a national force. unlike the greens and the whites. Um, and you know baxter state park is similar um i would say in a little bit but you know it's the adirondacks it's 25 percent when you exclude long island because i don't consider long island part of new york uh when you exclude <laughs> long island um makes up 25 percent of the state six wow. million acres 6.16 million acres the same size as new hampshire same size as vermont um it's bigger than yellowstone glacier smokies yosemite uh, and the grand canyon combined and, um, you know, a lot of people just don't understand the amount of wilderness here. And it's it's nuts. It's crazy. Um, it, it is so. really staggering. Um, you mentioned these first few people. Now, when these trails were cut, 
we always talk about this as we're hiking up these mountains, no matter if it's New York, Vermont, or mm -hmm. New Hampshire, it's just straight up. They're like, screw yep. you, we're gonna do the easiest part, you know, easiest way yeah. up, and that's straight. And then that's, everywhere that's, else, yeah. it's it's all switchbacks. Mm -hmm. Even in the whites, you'll find plenty of switchbacks. Okay, all right, because yeah. actually the one the one main trail that we were on- And gravel. <laughs> gravel. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one main trail we were on in the whites, it was straight up. We're like, we never catch a break yeah, here. I mean, there's there's still plenty of straight up trails in the whites, but there are yeah. definitely switchbacks in the whites. Can you explain the mm -hmm. reasoning behind that? I can. So the uh, the uh, the Adirondacks, like I said, are the oldest of all of them in terms of just people going and exploring them and really taking after it, um, especially with like how logging was and everything. The whole 1800s of the Adirondacks was was a mood, man. It was. It was very, very strange, completely different than what it is today. Um, but in most of these surveys, most of the survey groups, which was like with um, Mr. Emmons, Col uh, Colvin, and uh, like I said, Bob and George Marshall and Herbert Clark and all these, all these people who went out specifically like you can call them like the elite eight if you want. There's like eight people that notably went and summited every single high peak and surveyed every one of them. And so when you're doing that, when you're surveying brand new land and you're by yourself and whatever, and you have this knowledge back then, all you know is to take drainages. Like you understand like the lay of the land, you're like, okay, so we're taking drainages. We're taking, um, you're, you're able to kind of understand contours of the land and everything. And when they originally drew maps, they drew maps visually like they looked at everything out there and then they drew how they felt that it was visually on the map so when you saw a really eight like old like 1800s topo map um it's because they were out in the mountaintops looking out and visually looking at it and kind of look like putting themselves above looking down of how they feel like it it looked and everything um so yeah the reason why all the trails are straight up and why they're still that way um is because mixed with a how the trails were how the mountains were first summited and and brought up by the first few people uh, and secondly the rules that are put in place mm -hmm. um to preserve the land uh and so since you know the apa the adirondack park agency i think it was formed in the 80s um there was not a ton of hikers be before the 80s like i mean we're talking maybe just thousands throughout the whole year and so there wasn't a need to change up trails and whatever. And it was still rugged. Like it wasn't until the eighties that there were actual officially marked trails going out to like, like Phelps and uh, like Colden and all these other things. I think like there's a lot of like stuff that wasn't done until the eighties. And so once all the, the constitution of the Adirondacks was written, they kept all that stuff to preserve it. They would just maintain the trails that were put in place, uh, maybe reroute a few of them. Um, you know, in the nineties, early two thousands, maintain some of them. And then they stopped maintaining some of them and whatever. So the reason why the trails are what they are is simply just because of the old, old, old history, the Adirondacks. And it's just what's one of the many things that makes this place so, so awesome and different. That's amazing. That, thank you for the explanation. We're like, Oh, it's because they just didn't want people to hike up. They wanted their, <laughs> their the mountains no, just the, to it's themselves. The raw, that's like why I'm saying like, you can still go up Marcy yeah. and still feel like how they did. Right. Because that's the same yes. trail they took. That's, yep. that's cool. So we actually, and what you were saying about, if you time it right, you are absolutely right. You can go out there and feel like you are in the middle of nowhere. We managed to get a Marcy Summit 
with just the two of us up there. In June. Um, yeah, in June. We we left really early and got really lucky. And we fell, uh, as we were going up, we were talking about Theodore Roosevelt. I'm, he came up from the other side. But we were talking about Theodore Roosevelt. And, like, we are literally in his footsteps. Um, and it was an incredible feeling. So where does Van Hovenberg fit into that ah. history? <laughs> Oh man, Van Ho. Oh man, he's uh, <laughs> so okay. Look at Van, Mr. Van Hovenberg, uh, Henry Van Hovenberg. Um, it's like uh, okay, he's very eccentric. Okay, he was wealthy, and he. I don't re- see. I haven't read the book on Mr. Van Hovenberg, so I know some of his history. Uh, but I know eventually he bought land in like at like 1900 or like I think like in the late 1890s he bought what is the Heart Lake property. Um, and basically just made it his own, um, and eventually met a woman named Josephine and wanted to marry Josephine. And, uh, for some reason her parents would not let her marry Henry. And, uh, after that heartbreak, apparently she killed herself, um, in, uh, Niagara Falls. And so with this this heartbreak, I, I know this sounds crazy, um, but I uh, I believe it to be true because it's what they tell you at the lodge. And yeah. he was so heartbroken, obviously, he named – so there's Mount Van Hovenberg, which is named after himself, and then Mount Joe, which is Mount Josephine, and then Heart Lake that symbolize their love, um, which I really think is a double entendre because it also somewhat does look like a heart a little bit. Um, I just – you know, I think that's how it is. And then there's obviously like the fire – uh, I think it was 1913 about, um, hopefully I'm not getting a lot of statistics wrong on this, <laughs> this, uh, podcast. We'll test. Um, it. No, that's okay. We are learning. <laughs> I'm a, I have a, I still have a subjective memory. No um, worries. Some, so, uh, yeah. So Henry, like, uh, he, you know, obviously he was friends with like, you know, the Marshall, uh, the Marshall brothers and, um, and Clark and Verplank Colvin and all that. And he went out on a couple of their uh, outings, I think, and whatever. But uh, he, the only reason why he's so notable is simply just because he was the original owner of that land, which is now the Adirondack Lodge. Um, So it's just a, it's just a history piece. Okay. Yeah. For those who don't know Van Hovenberg and who's not, who've not been in the Adirondacks, that's the main most popular trail that, uh, goes from Marcy Dam to the top of Mount Marcy. I got that yep. right, yeah? Okay. <laughs> yep, yep. All right, excellent. All right, so you um, have a gallery coming up this weekend, I believe. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because uh, that's going to highlight your Winter 46, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so it's the, uh, it's, the show's called Winter 46, and I essentially in 2020 went and did a single season winter, 46 uh expedition uh and my goal was to photograph all 46 high peaks in their own unique way um and then in it to bring all those images to the public at a gallery uh, so that was the original intent um that was a single that was the thing that allowed me to uh like step out and really commit to the single season one of 46 was just that um i had you know i was shooting it for like i was doing it for a purpose rather than just myself i didn't have necessarily a um a desire to do the single season winner i wanted to become a winner 46er but then once this opportunity i was like oh okay i'm totally gonna do this now um but uh 
Yeah, so the Winter 46 show then went live. It got it was originally originally supposed to be May, June, July of 2020, got canceled, got pushed to 2021, and we had it uh in uh May, June, and July. Well, June and all of July mainly. And uh, I know eventually we were trying to get that to tour. And once the show ended, uh we were looking for some venues and then The View in Old Forge came about and they they transitioned the show to there. And I know there was definitely a lot of people who missed it and a lot of Canadians too. So hopefully the Canadians can come down and see the show now. Uh, but it's really cool. Like there's just a room filled with like 55 large metal art pieces of every single high peak. And um, in the one winter season. And so you can see throughout the winter, what everything was like and see the whole journey unfold and you can read about it. And um, so that goes from December 18th to March 19th. Oh, well, make so it's sure gonna, it's, to, yeah, it's uh, going to be there for three months, yeah. um, which is which is which is great. I, I I'm excited about that. And uh, but on the 22nd, in a couple of days on the Saturday, I am going to be hosting a lecture, uh, pretty much just a uh, just talking about a lot of things like this and um, showing my my short film. And uh, there's going to be like an ice bar and everything. It's going to be a fun little night. And then the following weekend on January 29th, I have the opening reception essentially of the whole entire event and the other artists as well there's so the view is a larger art center i believe than the lake plaza center for the arts um at least in terms of like building sizes and so they have like three different artists going on at the same time um and so we're gonna have an open reception for the whole entire show and um like i'll be there and um we're gonna have like a snowmobile movie and uh olympic roundtable discussion and like live music and stuff like that uh so yeah, it's really just uh like i said many opportunities that just kind of come about um seeking and trying to grow my photography career here because there's not i mean many people who are 24 years old and then get a whole entire gallery like exhibit in new york like i know that's not like common thing at all and i'm just like really just mind blown about the whole experience and super humbled about it um so it's like no, i mean it's is, obviously yeah yeah congratulations that yeah, is that is wonderful quite an accomplishment congratulations and, and crank we, we have are, to go <laughs> yes we are going to be back up there um next month so we will have to go so where exactly is the view it's in old forge okay yeah so Very right cool. smack middle old forge cute little town um, actually, I have to admit, I've only been to Old Forge one time, and it was in the summer. I mean, like, forgive forever, me, ever. where is Old Forge in terms of, let's it's say, like, It's like, it's like if you go to Inlet, which okay. is already far, Okay, keep going. Keep going. It's like that, okay. Uh, okay. I think. I think. Old Forge is pretty much dead center Adirondacks. Like, when you look at the whole map, it's dead center of the whole park. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, we will definitely, we're going to be North of Indian Lake. Northwest week. of Indian Lake, I think. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, we will be there. Parts unknown. (laughs) So what is the winter 46? What constitutes a winter season to do the 46 piece to make it count? Sure. So there's snow on the ground two months before winter starts, and there's snow on the ground two months after winter starts. But boohoo, it doesn't matter. Um, It's the same challenge for everyone, whether there's snow or no snow. it It is within the time frame of not that exact winter solstice, but within... Uh, December 21st to March 21st. And so you okay. get like those 92 days or so to do whatever you're doing. And that constitutes it as a, uh, a winter hike. And during your 46, what would you say was the most challenging of those mm-hmm. hikes? So any single hike 
can actually be the most challenging one, right? Uh, it depends on the conditions you did it in, uh, how you did it, and actually condition. It's all it's all condition all based. Um, and so, for example, for me, my hardest day, I think, it was when I did the sewer all four sewers, uh, the sewer range solo, um, and it was still like sixteen and a half hours. And it was just rough. It was a really rough day. And um, the thing is, the only reason why it was rough is because it took so long. I tried to ski part of it, and I just wasn't that great of a skier. And I didn't save up any time, and I had to carry my skis with me. And this, the skis would be knocking snow on me, and then half the trail was unbroken. Um, and then it was, like, terrifying to, like, hike out of the sewers in the dark and everything by myself and whatever. Um, and I was just so tired. And um, I didn't pack enough water or food for that as well. But the steward range could have been a piece of cake. You know, it could have been hard, frozen conditions, broken out, plenty of food, warmer, didn't ski, or I was a better skier or whatever. And something else could have been harder. Um, but for me, that was definitely the steward range. Um, there's also that. I mean, there were definitely a lot of tough moments. But I, because like I live here and everything, I was able to plan out exactly when I wanted to go do something. Um, there's only one really poor weather day. And that was when I did Redfield, Cliff, and Marshall in a day. And in the wintertime, it's actually really easy to do Redfield, Cliff, and Marshall if you have it in you. Um, it's easier to do them in the winter, those three together, than it is in the summertime. And, Why? Um, because there's a lot of um, – you can save a lot of time and distance if you know the route really well because you can cut directly over the flowed lands and save at least a mile, maybe even a mile and a half round trip. Um, by going straight over flowed lands over the ice and snow rather than around it. Um, okay. And then uh, for me, like – I, I know the bushwhack route off of the backside of cliff. And so uh, you can just, once you're on cliff, instead of going back down and all the way towards Redfield and then back over to uphill and then back down to floodlands, um, if there's enough, if the conditions are right and you know where you're going, you can just shoot straight off a of cliff and just go right back down to the floodlands and then hit up Marshall and then out. And especially if you know how to ski, like you can do Redfield, Cliff, and Marshall, I'd probably say under eight hours. Um like assuming you're like you, you have like in you and you're physically capable of doing that because skiing is so fast. And I don't, I don't actually even own a pair of snowshoes right now. My pair of snowshoes are actually on display at the view at my art show. Um, and so Great. if I, so I have to borrow if I need any right now. But I've really just been out with my skis. Um, so you will never see me doing trailhead to trailhead on snowshoes unless I'm guiding anymore. Okay. Um, or I'm out with a bunch of friends who don't know how to ski. Uh, but I it's just, yeah, I just, I can't, I can't get myself to do it anymore because skiing is just so much fun. You know, we, we were actually looking at, at doing cross-country skiing um, in the next couple of weeks. And uh, you were able to cross-country ski all of them? Are you able to? Can you? Okay, so, um, well, no, you can't really cross-country ski in the high peaks at all. Okay. Um, you have the backcountry ski, backcountry. Uh, which is a full entire, like, imagine you take downhill skis. Okay but they're designed to they have a completely different binding completely different boot like cross-country skis so they take like a cross-country style and then put that on a downhill ski and essentially that's what an alpine touring backcountry ski is like so it's got it's like wide it's like a downhill shape and everything it's it's got scales in the bottom um and then you have a specific binding that allows you to walk in in it and mm -hmm. then you know like uh, ascenders in the back for your heels and you have a specific boot that flexes and whatever. So that's like, you know, when you see people mountaineering and you're like, they, they have skins on the bottom of their skis and they're going uphill and stuff right. like that. So that's what that is. And so like you're skinning up the trails, like you can skin all the way up to right peak, like all the way to the summit 
and then take off your skins and then ski down the right peak ski trail. Uh, you know, so it's always wow. ski down from Marcy or whatever. Um, and you know, the trails are wide enough and they have specific sections. And when there's enough snow, you can, and you're obviously skilled enough, you can just rip down your skis. Like you're going down white face or something like that on the trails. Um, so is every single high peak skiable? Uh, I would actually say yes and no. Obviously there are people who have, there are people who have skied all 46. Um, and there are people who are still currently do, trying to do that. And, um, so the reason why I say yes and no is because it is obviously possible to, go car to car with your skis on every single high peak. But I, unless someone tells me that has done this otherwise, okay. I don't believe it is possible to ski every single high peak, how you would on snowshoes as in like on the trail only. Okay. Um, because I, there's certain trails that are just so like, I would, I would be terrifying to go down them because they're so narrow. Yeah. There's so many trees and whatever, like, like it's called survival skiing. Um, so in order to ski every high peak, you need to actually like go the, you need to like bushwhack off, ski off other sections and, um, not necessarily take the trail directly. Um, cause I can't imagine skiing down something like Redfield, you know, or, uh, something like, uh, like Phelps, I can understand like with a lot of, you know, or things like, you know, you're skiing like Saddleback, mm-hmm. you know, like, you can, like, it's strange. It just. I don't know. It's terrifying, you know, but if you can ski in the Adirondacks, you can ski anywhere in the world. I'll leave it at that. Wow. That's, that's quite, true. that's, that's true. an education and you'll hear for that, us. <laughs> you'll hear that. You'd hear that in, for most skiers out here. If you can backcountry ski, like ski the slides, ski the blacks or double blacks at white face, um, take out your skis and rip those Marcy and come back here. Uh, and you're okay. Like you can, you can ski pretty much anywhere in the world. Obviously, I'm not telling you to then just go up to like something in the right. Dolomites and like <laughs> and like rip something that's like avalanche prone. But for the most part, okay. I mean, that does change our plans a little bit, Crank. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Cross country skiing is good. I only re- like I recommend metal edge. The only thing like if you don't have metal edges on your cross country skis, then it's only meant for like in track. Uh, but if you have metal edge cross country skis and you know how to handle them well, like you can like pizza, you can like turn and whatever, uh, then you could manage going down like to Marcy Dam and back or like doing Heart Lake Loop and, and stuff like that. So there's definitely manageable stuff you can do, but it has to have like metal edge. Thank you. Yeah, we are. That is one of our goals this year to start exploring that. So um, thank you for the education. We will definitely take that into account. You are currently working on a red line. Um, Mm -hmm. It's actually a great tangent into this. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, the red line essentially is um, it's it's a universal term in the hiking community. It pretty much just when you redline something, you do all the trails. Uh, I'm actually surprised to see how many people, at least in the Adirondacks, haven't heard of this. In the White Mountains, it's a standard thing Mm -hmm. um, because people do the red line of the whites, which is crazy. It's like I don't even know. It's like. 2000 miles i think but out here it's only about once you've done it all you've done around 600 miles or so um but like it's only 360 350 miles of trail and uh well in the adirondacks though it's still very difficult because half of those trails the reason why um i became the 10th finisher of the regular one so just like not winter or whatever just the regular one uh in august and no one else has completed it since um, and I'm actually shocked. I was like actually trying to like, I knew there was a lot of people going for it and I was like trying to like get it done so I could be top 10. Uh, but no one's finished since. So I guess I wasn't, I didn't realize like I you didn't was have rushing. To rush. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I still enjoyed it, but anyway, so like 
uh, once I, I the reason why I decided to do the red line in the first place was because I I, I threw it on a map. I threw it. I digitally created the map of a red line, and then uh, I just clicked delete on every single one that I've done, and uh, oh, until cool. I got down to what I had left, and I was just like, whoa, I've done eighty percent of this thing unintentional. Wow. Yes. So I'm gonna go and finish it, and it took like maybe seven or eight outings. Uh, there were long outings because I'm a trail runner. Like there were days I was doing 41 miles running. Um, and, uh, like there's just a bunch of like marathons and ultra marathons and like, like it, like, cause it's like longer days in the summertime, like after dinner, um, like at like 5 PM or just before dinner or whatever, I'd go out and do like, uh, like a 10 or 13 mile section of trail, just run it before the sun goes down and come back. Cause there's a lot of flat stuff, a lot of very remote backcountry flat stuff that people just don't do a lot of abandoned logging road stuff that had marked trails, a lot of mm-hmm. horse trails, but it has to be a marked trail. It doesn't have to be maintained, but it has to have or had USGS trail markers on them. So no bushwhack. Um, no bushwhack. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working currently on the winter version of that, which is no one's ever done. I contacted Eric Schlemmer, who's written many books here in the Adirondacks, very well-known bushwhacker. He's done nearly 3,000 mountains out here, I think, or 3,000 summits um, in his lifetime. And uh, he's a very, very knowledgeable person, and he created the uh, the Adirondack Trans Route. That's why the Trans-Adirondack Route. Yes, um, okay. I know who you're yeah, talking about now. Yeah, so you know, border to border. And then yep. uh, he created this challenge, which is called the 250-plus miles of High Peaks Wilderness Area Redline Challenge. And he created it before... Areas like Dick's Mountain Wilderness and Giant and Whiteface and Esther became like High Peaks Wilderness. Um, and so, for example, because it's only trail markers, um, I don't have to summit things like the Santanonis or the Sewards or things like that because none of them are, are have trail markers. Um, so it's all the surrounding trails that do. But that makes it more difficult because you have to go out of your way to certain trails that you never would. Um, and so I'm doing the winter version. But why I came to the decision to do that is because I did the same thing. I threw it in and I just started taken off every single trail that I've done in the wintertime. And I was about 60% of the way done naturally. And so I was like, okay, this is fun. I've done all these trails now. So like, I know what they're like. I'm a skier. I have so much free time. Um, and I obviously like being out in the cold. And so I decided this is going to be my winter challenge and I got to get going on it. Like I've only done two out of uh, 18. I have 18 outings to do. I've done two of 18. Um, and so I'm also just been waiting for more snow, but we have enough snow now where I can go do flatter stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but after crunching the numbers, I have approximately 280 miles and around 52,000 vert. Um, but when you compare that to the whole entire thing, which is approximately 650 miles and around 150,000 vert. So you have to do um, that in two months. So I have just to do the 280 miles and, uh, the 50,000 vert. Yeah. So when you crank it all down, it's only like, it's like, uh, maybe what is that? Like five to, you know, 2,500 feet of climbing per hike mm-hmm. and 16 miles. So it's like having to go out and do, I would say tabletop and Phelps like 18 times in winter season. Okay. Um, that, makes, so that makes it sound more manageable. <laughs> it's, it's, it's easier than the single season winter 46. If, you can ski if you can't ski okay. this oh man 
there's a reason why no one's ever done it in the wintertime. Because <laughs> half of these trails, like the Cold River Loop, the Northfield Placid to Moose, Noose Pond, Newcomb Lake, Racket River stuff, um, the the NPT, the whole NPT, uh, sorry, the uh, Long Lake to uh, to Averyville, which is like 37 miles of it. And then there's other trails out there, Pine Pond and the Preston Ponds and Lake Henderson Loop. There's all this stuff that's like no one's going to have it broken out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll be out there with my backcountry skis cranking it out. And, um, yeah, I got to figure out my boot situation because my boots are comfortable at all. They're very comfortable, but I did get a half size too small. Um, and so like longer days kind of suck, but, um, and the skis that I have, my, like my, my hyper vectors are great for powder, like breaking through powder, but they're not fast because they have scales on the bottom. So I might use something in between, like on these other days, like metal edge cross country style, um, that are like, uh, smaller like they look like a cross-country ski but they have metal edge and fish scales in the bottom uh so yeah we'll see i'm just i'm not trying to think about it too much like tomorrow i'm going out you know to hike but i'm not doing any of the red line and so i'm not going to even touch any more red line stuff until monday and tuesday and i don't even know what i'm going to do yet i do every single thing based off of conditions okay right so what are you doing yeah. tomorrow i'm i'm hammock camping up at uh right peak right peak, um, that's right yeah, well, not on the mountain, obviously. Like, I'm camping uh, below it at McIntyre Falls at the campsite there and uh, hammocking because I'm going to make a video of what it's like to hammock in sub-zero temperatures and then go watch the sunrise and right. It's going to be a little rough, but uh, I just got to make sure, like, like I have all the appropriate gear and everything. I just, like, my, my strategy is, like, right when I get to the campsite, before I take anything <clears> out of my backpack, I'm going to put my camp stove down and I'm just going to start just boiling water um, for no reason except to just have warmth there because mm-hmm. i can't have a fire or anything so i'm just gonna boil water and then like i'll have something that i can just like maybe like i'll have like an extra analogy and i'll just put it in and um leave that there overnight and um whatever because i don't want to boil water in the morning or whatever but i don't know it's like negative 30 degrees is no joke i mean that's a little temperature so i just got to do this right is that with wind or is that static that's static Wow. So what's it going to be yeah. with wind? Well, there's not – It's actually, forecast is showing little to no wind. Oh, thank God. Um, wow. But thank I would God. say like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if there was going to – I mean, right peak is windy. But if there is wind, like let's say 20, um, I mean, you'd probably be looking at like 60 below, 65 wow. below. Didn't you do a, a hike a couple years ago and yeah. it's such a wonderful <laughs> video? Well, wonderful subjective. Um, definitely a lot of people in the, uh, you know, the people that I have that, uh, you know, people that I've had to take time to get to know me to change their opinion on me, I guess. Um, a lot of those people, um, and I don't blame them, um, before I knew anything really about winter hiking. Like I was like, oh yeah, I have like eight or nine winter summits, you know, on me at that time. And it's like, I got all the gear and whatever, but it was like, uh, 80 degrees below zero with the windshield. And I was in, it was in a cloud too. So it's even more dangerous and whatever. And so the video made it look like I was being very reckless. Um, oh. but, uh, I mean, I still did it though. It was like, awesome. I didn't, there was one point where I felt like, okay, this, this is actually really bad. Um, like I was close to borderline, like a red zone on like my toes at one point. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I did, I did do that. I would definitely even like be better now doing mm-hmm. it because I have like the right gear and everything. So, but the, yeah. the music, what I love, no, the, the cold, the cold doesn't bother me. Like the colder, the reason why I am hammocking tomorrow is because it's that cold. Like I'm like, okay, okay sweet. If it was minus 20, not cold enough. <laughs> it's gotta be, it has to be approaching <laughs> negative 30 degrees. Like for me, it's a really like, okay, it's worth it to go out there. Like, I gotta say like, okay, there's a good chance. This is going to be the coldest day of the winter season. 
right. And based off of everything, I mean, we could get a minus 35, minus 40 degree day in February if this keeps going. Yeah, I mean, going back to that video that that you did, I mean, I loved that video, and I was really sad because I can't find it on your channel anymore. I don't know. That's because you have to be a member of my YouTube channel. Oh, that's a member. Okay, it's a membership only video. (laughs) That 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 (laughs) my trap dyke video. Okay, which I I'm not going to recreate. I've decided I'm never going to go and recreate that. Brian Twardy, Brian Hikesel Day has a really great trap dyke video, and I'm just like whatever. I'm not going to touch it. I'm I don't even care if I do it perfectly. Like I have two winter ones, you know, up on there. Um, or I have two winter scents. I have one winter trap deck video, which honestly no one else really has. So mm-hmm. it's like, I, I'll just keep that there. All right. Cause Brian, if you're listening to this, I know you don't know how to winter climb the trap deck. So that's why I'm going to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> but his, We're his not trap deck that. video is amazing. <laughs> Say um, you're absolutely right. His trap dyke video is fantastic. It's, yeah, it's and you, like you can't. You watch it, you'll know exactly what you're getting yourself into. But you know, I, I picture Brian. Like I, I would say this to his face. Um, I picture Brian. Like obviously, he would want to use crampons and ice tools. He, that's how he'd want to do it. But I just picture him being like, oh, you know, I'm just gonna send it, and he's gonna just climb up in his snowshoes and an ice axe and just just try to get all the way up. And once he gets to the slide, he's going to just butt slide down, you know, with his ice axe, freaking out, going like 50 <laughs> miles an hour. Well, you've skied down the trap dike. I've skied down the southeast slide, which is okay. behind it. Um, uh, definitely sketchier. Like, I started really backcountry skiing last year. So, really, only after a month and a half of skiing, I was already going out onto the slides. But that's because I specifically trained for that kind of skiing. I didn't, like, start at, like, the green squares and stuff like that at Whiteface. I was literally put on a pair of high-end backcountry alpine touring skis and there's a very difficult trail on the backside of Mount Joe that's like expert only. Uh, it's like it's like an abandoned black diamond glade trail, like at Whiteface, you know. Hmm. And, and they're like, like I skinned up it and everything with my with the I was with the group, and I was like, guys, are you sure? He's like, yeah, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. <laughs> and so they set me down this trail as the first time, like I'm really going on skiing. And then once I got to the bottom, I was taught so well. Um, once I got to the bottom of it, I was like, I could go back up that right now and then go back down by myself. Um, so it's like, it all depends on how like the people you ski with and how they train you and how, how easily you, uh, can, I guess, uh, catch onto it and everything. Hmm. But yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I would say like, there's probably not many people who skied and then after a month was already skiing, like the hardest stuff at Whiteface and whatever. It's only because like how, like being taught, well, you know, teachers go such a long way. Um, and I specifically sought out to ski that specific type of stuff and be taught that specific way. Right. Um, so it's like, you're not going to learn how to run a marathon if, uh, all you're doing is, uh, well, sorry, rock climbing. You're not going to learn how to outdoor rock climb if you stay to do difficult indoor stuff and then eventually didn't move outside. If you want to learn how to rock like outdoor rock climb, let's say specifically, if you want to learn how to trad gear, placing your own gear and go and rock climb, then that's what you do. You don't start in the gym. You go out there and you do it, right? And this is a, this is you can apply this to anything mm-hmm. in life. You know, if you you look at the person you want to be or what you want to be doing, obviously there are some steps and stuff you might have to take to get to a certain place. But for the most part, if you're able to maybe put down some money on something that you need to buy or whatever, it's like go go all out. like put yourself right there. Don't start low and go slow. Just put yourself and learn with what you have and what you want. Um, you know, I'm not saying like if. You know, if you're going to like lose the interest, like obviously don't go, like if you want to be a photographer, don't go and buy a $5,000 camera only to lose interest a month later. Um, 
but it's like put yourself around the people you want to be start trying to learn specifically how to edit and shoot the exact types of images you want and putting yourself in that environment right to become that force yourself to become what you want to be um i guess you could say because i mean there's so much truth to you can set your mind you can do anything you set your mind to like obviously there's leeways and stuff in there because like if you're like disabled or or you just you are like impaired in some way shape or form like there's some things you won't be able to do as well as other people but like for the most part at the end of the day the ones who will succeed um are the ones who want it the most you know um and i i think there's so much truth to that the ones who are getting up at six in the morning or starting their hike at 11 30 p.m at night to watch the sunrise somewhere and yeah. not even make it in time for sunrise you know like like those are the people like that are uh, i don't know, like like those go-getters the grinders um yeah so kind of just back to the whole skiing question um no that was a i or, i enjoyed that no, that, that was, was a, that yeah. was excellent so, like, you're I, absolutely I right trap deck, like i learned how to ice climb here and everything so the trap deck went in good conditions like you don't need that's not insane it's not terrifying unless there's no snow and it's pure ice. Uh, then it's just like, it's like a very technical, you need ropes and gear placement the entire time on the way up. But for the most part, later winter, you can just go straight in and just like ropeless and just go up with an ice tool or two and your crampons and just go up it. And then, uh, I mean, if you know how to ski like really well, like I would like to ski the trap dike by the end of this year. Um, I would, it all depends on, you know, like I might end up making that my last thing that I do this winter um for okay. my red line because i do have to hit the backside of colden for the red line and um, i had myself skiing down the coolar slide um but i will be skiing that day mm-hmm. whatever it is and i will ski down a slide and if the conditions are perfect like i would totally love to ski down the trap deck so i mean i don't think i would just be ripping down it like a pro like i'll take my time um <laughs> okay and everything it's not as terrifying like once you know how to ski like and you kind of understand the environment it's not as terrifying as long as you know how to like like you can as long as you know you're not going to lose control going straight down and not know how to stop and run into something like once you get past that and you're like okay i know how to carve and stop and power turn and and you know like all these other technical backcountry terms and stuff then it's like okay yeah this is fine i can get down i might not get down fast but i can get down all right but if you get down if you get down then you skied it you know so if you walk your marathon or you run your marathon you still did a marathon you've done your marathon obviously like cut off there is a cutoff time yeah, exactly. Just walk fast enough to beat the cutoff time. Your cutoff, your cutoff is either death or turning oh around. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I we are looking forward to those videos. If you're able to put that on film, we're definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm not. You, I'll tell you this though: if I do record me skiing the trap deck, you better believe I'm only going to show the parts that make me look like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I will. It will be. It will be very like. I'm going to watch this and be like, man, they have no idea how terrifying that was. It makes it, I'm trying, I'm only, I'm actually only going to probably be recording the people doing it that actually know what they're doing. <laughs> so, and the trap deck's really the only things I would actually film skiing. Um, only stuff that's really, really well known. I won't really be skiing, uh, recording a ton of stuff because I've learned that the backcountry skiing uh, community is actually way more secretive way way more protective really? about their locations oh my gosh oh. yeah they're they're crazy like i actually i was standing on algonquin and the skier guy came up and says oh yeah i know you yeah i saw I, he was literally like yeah 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 i actually saw that you've been skiing listen love your stuff but listen he was like straight up. he's like please don't go and record all these secret skiing locations for the world to see 
And like, I understand it. I'm like, I get that because it's like, it's, it's a, it's, they're not gatekeeping mm-hmm. because there's not, it's not that I just, you don't look at it like gatekeeping. A lot of people look at it like gatekeeping and it's like, no, they're not forcing them out of there. They just want to keep specific places just to like, um, they don't want places to necessarily become overcrowded or well-known. It's not that they're not trying to prevent, they don't want people to experience it. They just being like, you know, Hey, don't, don't go and record this remote glade on the side of this mountain that no one knows about because it's it's fun you know to just go out there with their friends whatever and they don't need to know about that stuff um so i'm kind of just doing it as respect for that community um you know so i was just like yeah i'll just i'll ski i'll, I'll record a couple skiing videos whatever show people now like i'll go maybe show a vlog of me skiing the right peak ski trail or something like that everyone knows about that mm-hmm. you have provided me with a perfect segue my segues in the last couple episodes <laughs> have been on point and you have provided me with yet another one um so yeah backcountry skiers worried about overcrowding the entire adirondack region there's a debate on Mm -hmm. overcrowding yeah people are going to hate what i have to say about this but i'm ready we're ready for it we're ready for it Um, what is your stance on it what solutions advocate if any the only reason why i feel i'm in a position to advocate my opinion on overusage is simply because of the people that i recreate with um i can't say that even though I started hiking here in 2015, I am no way, shape, or form going to put myself in the shoes of someone who grew up here in the 80s and 90s. Um, but uh, for those of you who are listening to this that might know 46 and 46 podcast, uh, yes. James Appleton was born and raised here in Lake Placid and uh, his whole life here. And so because I've like spent so much time with him and other people that have lived here their whole life, I have a, a pretty decent understanding, I feel like, of what this place was like before that. And it's really helped me kind of um formulate my thoughts on this but i will say i did start hiking here on that cusp of the of the explosion i guess you could say of hikers which was 2017 i think we would all agree on around was 2017 summer is when um ironically when i started vlogging and everything too um so uh you know people could blame me if they want for everyone coming here but (laughs) um whatever um but no uh seriously i do think overcrowding is subjective I do. I don't think overcrowding actually uh, is a problem all year round. I don't even think it's a problem everywhere in the park. Um, I think the trails, specifically, the trails themselves can have an overabundance amount of people and is absolutely can be overcrowded on infrastructure. And a lot of this is because there are people not um, uh, a lot of the DEC and the state. Um, are not putting resources where resources need. And I mean, I'll say it like they're not getting with the times. They're just trying to, uh, it's the difference between um, wilderness and wildness. Um, it's like the difference between restriction and restoration. Um, so like there's a difference between letting a place um, naturally grow and flourish. And then a difference between that and putting in all of these restrictions I don't know. It's like it's like trying to find the art of how can we let all these people be here without kicking them out mm-hmm. because they have every right to be here. Um, but how can we cope with this? And I think they've they've done a poor job with that um, simply because there's so much money that's not going towards this stuff. Um, now we're obviously not a national forest, but the state did just give Orta, the Olympic organization here, five hundred two million dollars 
to rebuild their Olympic infrastructure. Now, it is important because the only reason why Lake Placid is the way it is and the high peaks are have the tourism that to do, I would say, is entirely because of the Olympics. And there's thousands and thousands of Olympic athletes and people here and train and use everything in the state makes a ton of money off of it. So I understand that why it's a good investment and all uh-huh. the roads and everything here. So I'm not trying to compare Orta to the high peaks. But when you look at their budget, they, they cut rangers, they cut spending on everything um and they're trying to obviously restrict people from being able to come here through now like the pilot reservation system which i even have reservations just about um what i feel like about the adirondack mountain club and i'm Elf sorry Lake. to interrupt can you yeah. explain the pilot reservation system so it sounds like they're starting to institute a program well, where you the, have to yeah the amr reserve? is the amr right so this whole last summer was a pilot reservation system so they um it's their property they own it they have a um, an easement, right? So they have this easement and everything. And so they're allowing people It's like, okay, if you're going to hike on our property, then you have to follow these rules. So because they have the private land and that they own it and every single thing, um, they specifically, the DEC actually didn't want this. Um, the, D, the DEC claimed the reservations are and will always be a last resort. And I do believe them um, okay. because I believe the DEC strongly wants to withhold the Adirondack Constitution. The reservation does not fit in place there anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd have to skew a lot of things kind of like you know not to get too political but how we've done with our own constitution of the united states a little bit um but um you know with the amr like yeah you know if they want to do that i understand why they're doing it i'm sorry um, to interrupt again yeah. what is the amr and like what peaks would that cover? so yeah the adirondack mountain reserve uh, essentially is the eastern region uh which would be like the lower great range uh colvin lake nipple top dial okay. uh, indian head and okay. uh, lower Osable lake and all that saw teeth uh, so they have a ton of traffic there, but they, um, what's funny is in 2020, they actually cut their parking lot in half. We saw. And then with, with the influx of hikers on top of that, which 2020 was extremely overcrowded, I will say was definitely overcrowded for what it should have been. Um, but it was uh, down at least 30% in 2021 since then. But so yeah, the AMR, they own a ton of land. I, ah, see, so yeah, people are going to quote me on this, but I want to say it's like, Mm, 25,000 acres, maybe more, maybe less. Uh, and they used to have a ton more. They actually used to own all those summits, but then they, um, the, they, the state bought that land from them. Um, so yeah, they put, they put the pilot system in there and a lot of people weren't happy, especially because the state themselves actually blockaded most of the pull-offs within a mile up and down, um, of that place, which prevented a lot of people from being able to rock climb and stop and see scenic the scenic waterfalls and all this other stuff that are just for people that aren't trying to go to the amr and so trying to people trying to bypass and sneak in without a permit and whatever and uh yeah i don't know it's just it was frustrating but um i didn't actually really hike that i actually didn't hike at the amr at all between april and october um i just coincidentally i just didn't need to get anything in there and i just was kind of avoiding it um yeah so kind of back to the uh you know this the the money and everything like i'm not trying to say like you know i I, okay i'm taking this from the words of a ranger who one of the head of the rangers i'm not going to say his name um but uh he um he said the problem that we have is there's not enough rangers and there's not enough infrastructure and the infrastructure could be trail work and parking because there's a small controversy with building upon the land and the thing is when you're building into wilderness zones, there's that's different than if you own private property there, state or non state owned private property, for example, the Adirondack Lodge and then or the AMR wanting to expand parking 
completely understandable. They want to build a new parking lot at South Meadows. They want to build stuff along the uh, the Jackrabbit Trail as well. Um, and they, yeah, Matt Van Hovenberg has created that huge 300 car parking lot and is rebuilding that route for Cascade. That's and they're going to be closing the regular trail and probably putting up posts as well. I'm going to assume they're going to probably put posts there as well to prevent people from being able to hike that trail and close the trail close the trail i just did air quotes for those who are listening um and uh you know so like they're slowly getting at it but they're going too slow Mm -hmm. and so overcrowding is only existing because the infrastructure is not put in place for the amount of people and so yes it seems overcrowded but the things it doesn't have to feel that way it doesn't have to be that way i could literally like go to the lodge right now and i would probably be the only single car in the entire parking lot right now on a wednesday night on a wednesday night today's weather wasn't even that great like and it's gonna be cold i probably not a single car at the lodge right now um now obviously it's middle of the winter but like uh, i've lost track with how many times i've been the only car at the lodge i've been the only car at the lodge elk lake uh the amr and uh cascade like middle of the days like you know i i have and it's like if you like there's specific things that might need to be put in place to restrict specific things like on saturdays but i think what the lot i think what um i think what the amr should have done was restrict um, the amount of people that can park there and permit only the weekends. Um, I think there's something to be said with weekend hiking in the summertime in the fall. That makes complete sense. Um, that's why they don't do the pilot reservation, the reservation system in the wintertime because there's not that many people. Uh, and I do think I do think the winter will always kind of, I don't think it's ever going to be where the summer is today. Um there's definitely always a lot of people like out, like when you get towards the end and it's like March and it's like, you know, 45 degrees and sunny and it's like tons of snow. Like, yeah, there's plenty of people here, but yeah, I think overcrowding definitely is subjective to how you look at it. Um, I will say there is overcrowding and there isn't overcrowding. Um, there's so many different ways and it, it can be dealt with in so many different areas and there's so many people divided about it. It's just a really touchy subject. Um, and like I said, with not being here, like my whole life, um, I don't hold as much, my words don't hold as much weight um for how i feel about like because obviously even though i live in lake placid i don't mind the people i love the people i want people to come here and see these mountains um i think it's great that we're trying to implement a brand new that the lodge is implementing a brand new info center uh where cascade cross-country ski is on 73 um i'm trying to make more educational content myself and trying to just people are really trying to push all that stuff so that when people are coming here they're not idiots um and you know running up and down the trails in flip-flops jeans blasting music <laughs> with a single water bottle trying to yep. go and hike marcy for the day you know yeah, some kid from new jersey yeah some kid in new jersey in the last week of may wanted to go hike marcy and then getting stuck in the snow at four corners like that happens um but ranger rescues are definitely down or whatever but yeah we need long story short we need more rangers we need more infrastructure money to be put in and people need to be okay with growing that because we're not trying to become a national forest here we're not going to restrict people we shouldn't restrict we shouldn't put permits in place it should simply be freedom of the people to come here hike recreate so what because guess what as time goes on more people are going to learn about this place it's not because of anything specific it's just we have the we're in the future we are in the future like this is the future like I mean, it's bound to happen. And now we're going to gatekeep. We're going to shut people away. No. If you know how to hike here properly, you have the right knowledge, understanding, and you're respecting this place, there can go ahead and be 300 people climbing Marcy in a day. Um, but based off of like what those summit stewards and stuff like that, they come up with, like, I mean, I think this last summer, there was one time that they had to do like before the summit steward even got to the summit, there was already three different 
people she had to call in for like tickets and like rangers had to come up before she even got to her post for the day so there's still always going to be people who don't know what they're doing and obviously the more people that hike there's still going to be then more of those people um but that's where it's like more rangers more people patrolling trails um to inform people because if you give them a ticket they're gonna learn you get a ticket speeding in a specific area you know the cops always send it around you're probably not gonna speed in that area you know they're looking out for your safety. They're not trying to give you a ticket because they want the money. For example, okay, this is, I'll say this and then we can move on to the next question. But people don't realize this, okay? Snowshoes. When I say it's illegal to not wear snowshoes, it's not like, uh, oh, we don't, rec- we just recommend you wear snowshoes when it's more than eight inches. No, no. No, this isn't a, oh, yeah, you're just going to get a ticket and you can continue on your hike because you didn't have snowshoes. No, no. If they turn you around, that is the single best. I don't care if you were halfway at Marcy. If they turn you around, that is them being gracious because they will give you a ticket up to $250 or 15 days imprisonment in jail. Okay. Wow. That is actually in the hand. That is actually in the book, uh, the DEC's rules and regulations. It is a $250 fine up to $250 fine or 15 days imprisonment. The only reason why you'd get imprisonment is if, you refuse to pay the fine and you refuse the ticket and you refuse all that other stuff. Obviously their last resort, but I don't think anyone right. has, I don't think anyone has gone to jail in recent years for <laughs> not wearing snowshoes, but that's how serious they are. That's a, that's the biggest problem for winter is the lack of snowshoes, which by the way, not to, not to like get anyone you know excited about this, but I didn't realize this until last year, but Colvin Blake, nipple top dial, the entire Dick's range, giant Rocky peak and white face and Esther are all not required to have snowshoes um, because they're not high peaks wilderness, (laughs) right? But okay, so hang on. I'm going to correct myself too and say they are, so giant, uh, so the Dick's Range and Colvin Blake Nipple Top Dial, those are all now Eastern high peaks, but they have not signed over yet the official rules from the original wilderness zones. So Dick's Wilderness was the Dick's Range, Colvin Blake Nipple Top and Dial. And so even though they are now Eastern high peaks, they the name has switched over, but the rules and regulations still haven't officially. So it's still technically Dick's Range Wilderness. And turns out you can have fires there. You can have like you can have a fire like 150 feet off trail, like hiking freaking nipple top. Like it's weird. Like I guess, yeah, there's so many rules and regulations, and people just automatically come in and assume, like, oh, you have to have snowshoes. And obviously you should, you should. be using snowshoes. Yeah. yeah, I was going up nipple top once guiding and a, 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 a ten of group a, a group of ten people came trudging down the Elk Pass Trail without snowshoes, destroying it. And I even called the Rangers and they said they were gonna do something about it, but I don't know what they ended up doing. Um but yeah, uh so it's weird. Hopefully they'll adapt those adopt those rules soon. Um because snowshoes are necessary in all of high peaks, any wilderness zone. Um, so this was just like drone usage. I can go to like Silver Lake Mountain or something like that and fly my drone legally, but I'll, there will be someone up there that would tell me I can't. And I'll be like, no, I can, but I'm not going to because I want to respect your desire to hike this mountain in peace. And you don't want to hear, you know, the whole time. So I won't fly it because of that reason. Um, but uh, yeah. No, that, wow, that definitely was educational. Thank you for letting us know about um the rules with fires because we just assume they weren't allowed anywhere so that is really helpful there are discs that are put in place and like certain on the campsites there that say no fires but i would really really be curious to see what the rangers would have to say about that because it's kind of like those one those one of those things where it's like they might have that there but it's only because they're just trying to get people to not have a fire when you legally can 
because I am a very crafty person. And if there's a rule to get away with uh, and where it would be for my benefit and it would actually work better for my favor, then I will actually do that. I will. I am a loophole finder. Um, that's, I think, one of the reasons that's, that I know Jonathan Zaharik might be a controversial topic to some people because Jonathan's always like that guy who's always going to, you know, I've been told I'm the person, I'm going to be the reason why someone has to get rescued or like I've been told, and these were like earlier years, like I've been told like, you know, like whatever, stuff like that. Uh, but it's like, look, I do like getting away with things, but I'm not going to like get away with something that's actually like illegal. Like I will do something that's like, I will fly my drone in a spot where you think it's illegal, but it's not, you know, like, like that type of thing. Like I'll get away with it. Um, but that's because like there's loopholes. If there's a loophole, if it's going to benefit me, I'm, I am a little bit of selfish, but like, Hey, I'll do it because, uh, I mean, if I, if I can have a fire here, I'm going to have a fire here. It's legal. It's not even a loophole. It's legal. I know, you know, it's legal, but they want you to think it's not, you know, the type thing. But uh, we are. I just be careful showing that stuff to other people. It would just be right. for like myself. Right. Like I'm not going to show that and put that out for other people, other than what I just said just now publicly. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are, and I wish that this attitude was more prevalent in the hiking community at large. We are huge advocates of individual responsibility and individual mm-hmm. self-interest yep. while respecting the land and while respecting the people around you. Yeah. So most of the rules that are in place, a lot of ones that we think might be unfair or whatever, are simply just to, because one person has to do this, everyone has to do it type thing. Um, and they're put in place for those things. Like every single person, it's up to their own responsibility to respect the land and to do whatever. Um, and then just obviously what you believe about the land and everything, I guess, will like will flow from that. But that's why it's like the constitution here is so important and understanding what what the history of this place is and why it's so important and why the trails are straight up and you know <laughs> the little things like that mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um so we've kept you about an hour and 15 minutes at this point it has been a wonderful conversation so great. i'm looking forward to going back i don't listen to all of our episodes but i'm looking forward to going back mm-hmm. and listening to this and just because we learned a lot sure. and we've been able to process all of it so um I'm definitely looking forward to going back and listening to our own shit. Um, So we, like I said, we've kept you about an hour and 15 minutes. I mean, we Um, can, if you have some, if you have some specific questions, I can go like 60 second answers. (laughs) Well, I was just going to, I see some questions here. Do you want to know like about Katad and like hardest off and trail running? Well, Um, I was going to ask you if you wanted to come back for a part two, because there is so much more to talk about and you are a, a wealth of information. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I could definitely come back for part two. Um, so, I mean, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Oh, but, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, I think we're going to about wrap it up. The other stuff we can save for a part two. Um, but to finish, we always like to say that we are blatantly ripping off Kyle O'Grady's Trail Tales. And we mm-hmm. always ask yeah. our guests at the end to share some type, some type of trail tale i tried to say um it could be funny it could be serious whatever you would like to share that you think would be interesting you know what's funny is despite me having thousands of miles on my feet here i i'm not saying i'm not going to say a story i will say a story but uh (laughs) i um i don't have many like crazy experiences here um except except my like very terrifying like Bigfoot type related encounters um, out in the southern region, and uh, 
but uh instead He's of that real? i'll talk about what well sasquatch okay yeah sasquatch <laughs> is real that's not a joke sasquatch is a real thing okay. um i don't i yeah right, but, let's, uh, let's go with that, that. Said, no, 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 no 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 it's gonna take too much time you can say that for part two okay you know i can i listen i will actually spend 10 minutes explaining on the next on part two come back for part two i will take 10 minutes explaining uh, exactly what Sasquatch is and oh, people are going to they're going to realize that it is actually a legitimate flesh and blood creature roaming around the wilderness of the United States and dozens of other countries around the world aside from that here's the story so I was going and doing Rocky Peak Ridge right okay uh, this was earlier this year actually or last year so like I think around late May there's still snow um, it's like there's still enough snow in the call and stuff that you could get away without snowshoes um, but like you maybe maybe wanted them or whatever but I was just just having fun but i was trail running kind of trying to get stuff done early season and uh there's this going coming back up giant which by the way doing that sucks i every single time there was one time that i i uh i think the second time i did that call i went up the giant then i went down up rocky peak ridge down back up giant then back down up rocky peak ridge and then down and then back up it was it was awful for something that just didn't have to happen but anyways um this time around there's a really cool spot going back up giant that if you know where the trail is it looks like a trail but it doesn't point to anything actually i think it just says not the trail or something like that <laughs> but um if you go down that it actually takes you to a gorgeous outlook of this of uh giants uh, the giants um east slide and i went out to that for the first time and you know it's like maybe my ninth or tenth time up giant and i was like this is for you know what? i'm here just i'm gonna chill out i'm just gonna go to this and i was with some other guy that i uh met up with going up giant and um I went out to the slide and I was just like walking it, looking. I'm like, this is pretty cool. You know, we walked out into the slide a little bit. I'm just standing there and um, just feeling the breeze. And the guy I'm with, he says, is that a bear? And I just kind of just like, I heard that. And I like, he's far enough away from me where it was like, it wasn't like right next to me. He was, I was, he's kind of distant. And I heard him say that, like he said it to himself, but out loud. And I, I did a, I did a double take in my mind. I was like, what? He's like, is that a bear? I'm like, I'm not expecting him to say this. I'm like, <laughs> four thousand feet up on this yeah. remote slide. What do you mean? Is there a bear? I've never even, I've never seen a bear in the Adirondacks. And he, uh, he's like, look over there. And I'm just like looking. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, look right there by the tree line on the slide. And I look at, it, and sure enough, there's this dead bear, a dead black bear, sprawled out on the slide. And I'm like, what on earth? And so I walk up to it. This thing's like the size of like maybe a golden retriever. So mm -hmm. it's not a baby. It's right. not a, a little one, but it's like a junior. It probably mm -hmm. like full grown. So it would have weighed like nearly 150, I'd say. Um, not full grown. Um, if it had like, it was still alive, it'd be like 150. And I'm just like looking at this thing. I'm why I walk up to it. He walks up to him. We're just staring at it. And I'm just like, how did that? What? And we had so many questions. And so um, after examining it, I took pictures of its face, its its paws and everything. And um, we were just confused uh, how that got there. And so then after everything, I, I actually ended up sending the images to um, uh, Mr. Nichols, who's head of wildlife biology at Region 5 DC. And he was just like, wait, what? He was just as shocked as I was. And he um, he looked at the pictures and he was just like, bro, this is nuts. We, I don't even know how that thing would have ended up there. Like these pictures and asking me questions about it. And I'm just like, yeah, it's weird. Like maybe it was there pre-winter and it froze or it fell or something, or we don't know. Like, it was weird. And he, so he ended up, little did I know, he ended up sending that image, the images of that to every single ranger of region five, the 
like the main ones of the high peaks and like i'm acquainted with some of them but that night i also coincidentally went to a party that had eight of the region five rangers and all, all the all the ones who fly the helicopters all of them right there right so we're all just chilling hanging out i'm like of course i'd be at this thing but i'm um, just like enjoying <laughs> it and um in the midst of our just talks um rob uh, for Jackalow, who's like he took Scott Van Leer's position, so he's somewhat of the head honcho, but now he's in um, Region Four, I think. But um, he is just like, oh yeah, did you guys see what what, what Jimmy said to everyone? Did you guys see those pictures of the bear? Oh yeah, we saw those pictures. That was crazy, you know. And they were just talking about it. I'm just standing there. They have no idea that was me. And um, <laughs> um, I'm gonna say, I'm just like, listen, I'm just like, hey, uh, hey guys. Um, that was today, and that was me. I took the pictures of that bear, and I sent them to Jimmy. They were like, wait, this is so weird. That was you? I'm like, yeah. They were asking me questions, whatever. And um, and so my uh, my uh, my roommate actually ended up the next day going up to the bear and actually declawed it. And now I have a necklace with um, with a bear claw oh, wow. um, on it from that bear on the slide. Um, so that was just, just a really fun day. What an exciting day. What a story. Wow. Yeah, and no, no one has any idea how it got there. Like, you know, my my guess is it was too high, it starved, um, and uh, it might have fallen. It either fell from the top of the slide and rolled down, or it got up there somehow in the winter. Because, like I said, this was like May. There was still snow in the cull, <laughs> um, and. Uh, it maybe it got up it got up high it froze to death which was trying to hibernate hibernated up too high it was a young bear um and somehow got frozen in the snow mm. and then thawed out over time and ended up there uh but it was kind of preserved throughout the winter um which was my guess because the the coloration and stuff like that didn't really match up at all okay um so it was kind of interesting because it like Wild. looked fresh it looked more fresh, but the coloration and the deterioration of the animal ind- indicated that it died a long time ago. Okay. But it was all like per- completely fine. <clears throat> gotcha. Wow. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, yeah. Thank you for sharing. I just I'm thinking about that story. Sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, to to finally wrap this up, please share all of your socials with us. Oh right, yeah. Uh, Jonathan Zaharik, uh, J O N A T H A N. How it's supposed to be spelled um zaharik z-a-h-a-r-e-k um how it sounds and um you google that that's gonna show you everything my website youtube channel instagram um my youtube channel and my instagram are just my first and last name um my website's jonathanzphotography.com and uh yeah you can follow me on there i'm not posting daily to my youtube channel i'm posting like monthly um but um i'm trying to do it like weekly or bi-weekly now but uh i mean i always say that but uh I am posting almost daily to my Instagram story, which a lot of like my nitty gritty, like what I'm doing on a day to day basis is on my Instagram story. Um, so cool. Well, once again, thank you so very much uh, for coming on the podcast and chatting with us folks. If you're listening in real time, please go visit the view art center in old forge, New York to see some of Jonathan's work. It really is spectacular. Uh, It is on until March, so you do have some time. And other than that, Jonathan, if you could just stay on after we close it out, thank you so much again. All right, folks, we will catch you all on the next one. Ciao.